Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Three arrested as police raid site of Hackney's annual anti-pavilion. Government blocks Albert Embankment's Fire HQ redevelopment. Leading London architects chosen for enormous Moscow estate regeneration. And the RIBA faces criticism for revising down its climate targets. My name is Zoe Cave. I am head of projects at Open City. And I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. My special guest this week is Will Hurst. Will is Managing Editor at The AJ. Welcome to the show, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Our top story this week has been covered by The AJ as well as The Guardian. It's all to do with the storming of this year's anti-pavilion site by the Metropolitan Police as part of a series of preemptive strikes against the climate activism group Extinction Rebellion. On Friday, police officers dramatically stormed Hoxton Docks the venue of the annual Anti-Pavilion Architectural Commission, where a special early summer installation, a tensegrity structure, was being mounted on the roof. Witnesses told of scenes in which the police, who originally arrived with the apparent intent to dismantle the bamboo and wire landmark, dubbed all along the watchtower, later changed their mind and eventually left the area on Saturday afternoon. The artists behind the structure, who called themselves Project Bunny Rabbit, insisted that while many of their participants may also be XR members, as a collective they operate independently from the group. They describe themselves as, quote, an autonomous design collective focusing on art and architecture through the lens of the climate crisis. In response to the surprise arrests, members of the collective said in a statement, it is staggering that the police targeted what is quite clearly an art installation and not one connected to or constructed under the banner of Extinction Rebellion. The organiser of the anti-pavilion competition, which itself has been no stranger to controversy over the years, Russell Gray, was also arrested. Commenting on the police presence, he said they smashed their way in, handcuffed everyone on site and arrested a few. He added that spare bamboo poles and coils of wire, which had been bought for all along the watchtower, were also seized. Chief Inspector Joe Stocko from the Metropolitan Police's Public Order Command said, We took proactive action to prevent and reduce the likelihood of criminal activity during the course of the weekend, noting that XR protests were planned elsewhere. So, Will, what on earth is going on here? We've got used to scenes of police surrounding statues to protect them, ostensibly from protesters. But here it seems the police were the one attacking a sculpture and even arresting the staff making it. 
Is this paranoia from the authorities around anything which might be linked to environmental activism a worrying sign for architects who, now more than ever, are making provocative work to challenge the system to be more ecological? I mean, I find it quite depressing, really, because I think, um, as you say, the police seem to have a very heavy-handed approach towards some forms of protest. Uh, and the climate emergency is, is kind of forefront among those. It's almost as if, you know, some parts of government are saying, yes, we acknowledge the severity of this crisis. And, you know, they keep ramping up the targets for net zero, for example, which are now the the most stringent in the world. Um, and on the other hand, you know, other branches of the public sector, like the police, treat XR almost like terrorists. And I don't think, I think there's a complete dissonance between those two positions. You either accept it's a real emergency and therefore peaceful protest is valid or, you know, you, you're downplaying it and you're not really tackling it in the way it needs to be tackled. Um, so I think the Met Police position is, is untenable. Anti-Pavilion's backer, Russell Gray, who spent the night in a police cell after the raid, has already come to blows with authorities in the past. The 2020 installation, A Series of Fibreglass Sharks by architect Jamie Shorten, was removed due to a last-minute court injunction by, um, by Hackney Council. Was Gray playing with fire to choose the bamboo tensegrity structure, given it was visually similar to the ones XR used to blockade News International's Broxbourne Printworks in September? Or is this the kind of provocative installation a refreshing change from the more passive tradition of architectural pavilions? He's very much at the, the forefront of um, where architecture meets activism, I suppose. The best art often is very provocative and... Um, uh, you know, I can see why they wanted to explore some of these sort of cutting edge techniques where uh, architecture is being used uh, as a form of protest. Whether, you know, I have no idea what intelligence they had, whether there was anything behind this idea that actually these, these this uh, 10 secretary structure was going to be used in protest or not. But um, yeah, I can absolutely understand why um, Anti Pavilion wanted to explore this area. Um, and you can kind of see from to some extent why this attracted the attention of the police. You know, the police tactics, as I said before, are getting um, more heavy handed. Um, and, you know, we've seen that with kettling of Black Lives Matter protesters and XR protesters where people are trapped for very long periods of time. And, um, you know, obviously when you can erect structures that... Um, people can occupy and the police find it very difficult to remove protesters in that sense and it's maybe more effective than gluing your hand to a part of the home office or something like that. The links between the construction industry and uh, climate crisis are becoming more explicitly known and discussed in part thanks to AJ's ongoing retrofit first campaign. Um, it seems likely that architects will create more installations that challenge the status quo in some way. How should the wider industry be responding to these actions by police? Well, I think we need to know more. I think I'd like to hear more of an explanation from the police about what was going on here. As I said before, I don't really think it's acceptable for any branch of the public sector not to have a view on uh, the climate crisis um, and acknowledge this is our biggest challenge. And therefore, I think uh, everything flowing from that has to reflect that challenge, including policing. Yeah, I think the industry should be calling on the police to explain itself, really. 
Our next story was covered by the AJ and is all to do with the government's rejection of Pilbara and Partners' plans to redevelop the former London Fire Brigade HQ. Housing Minister Robert Jenrick has thrown out plans to overhaul the former London Fire Brigade headquarters on Albert Embankment near Lambeth Palace in central London. Pilbara and Partners, working for developer UNI, had proposed more than 443 homes on the site, as well as a 200-bed hotel, 10,000 square metres of office space, a modernised fire station and a new museum for the London Fire Brigade. The scheme, which would have reused and extended the Grade 2 listed fire station building and added a 24 and 26 storey towers, was approved by Lambeth Council in 2019 and Sadiq Khan in 2020. Despite this, the plans were met by strong objections from heritage organisations such as the 20th Century Society, who said the roof extension would destroy the character and form of the LFB headquarters, designed by E.P. Wheeler in 1937. After calling in the plans last summer, Jenrick has now rejected the scheme on the advice of planning inspector David Richards, citing reasons including the heritage impacts and repercussions for nearby homes. While Richards noted that Pilbaram Partners' plans had several advantages, including the restoration of two listed buildings, he warned that the scheme departed from the local development plan. So Will, what's this all about? This is a very unusual turn of events. What we've typically seen in the past with regards to these situations is the local councils putting the brakes on developments and the government often intervening to give developers the all clear. So why in this instance has Jenrick overhauled these plans? What does all of this tell us? Well I think it was a surprise really. Um, I certainly wasn't expecting Jenrick to reject these plans. Um, It may reflect a sort of growing scepticism from the part of Jenrick and others at MHCLG about tall buildings. That's what I'm hearing that um, you know that, that they're actually questioning the value of um, of high-rise a lot of the time. This scheme in particular um, showed off some of the negative effects of those high-rises because the inspector viewed it in some ways, I think, as overdevelopment. Um, the loss of light was quite um, extreme for some of the existing residents. I think they were losing something like 45% of their daylight, um, some residents. I do think it was a, it was a probably quite a finely balanced decision, as you said before. There was um, a number of things that the inspector um, praised about the scheme, the Pilbrow scheme. I think there was also a great deal of local opposition, um, and we're hoping to expand on that in the AJ in, in the next few weeks. We've we've talked about a bit about the local opposition, but um, I know that the, you know the Garden Museum which is a neighbour, was very, very much opposed. A lot of local residents were opposed and um, a campaigner named Michael Ball, um, who was also uh, well known for fighting the Garden Bridge very hard indeed and, and uh, sort of rallying uh, local local opinion against that and, and now this. Um, so I think, you know, there is an opportunity to create something there um, that will work, but I think it has to be done in a very consensual way you know there has to be much more community involvement from the word go they are going to have to start kind of from scratch maybe not completely from scratch but it's going to be a different scheme there Um, and you know we've had now this is the second major project for the site knocked back um, so they really have to get it right I think. 
The government's controversial new planning reforms, which were announced earlier this year, have been dubbed the Developers' Charter by some. Many critics argue that the reforms show how far in the pockets of developers the current government might be. This story may therefore come as a surprise move. Why might some people be tempted to read this as a sign the Conservatives are going to put up more of a fight against big developers? Do you think this is a one-off or will we be seeing more interventions from the government on big redevelopments like this? I think it's really hard to know. I think um, it does feel like the first time and maybe it will be one of the very few times that a major scheme like this is not backed by Gemri. Um I think... Uh, I haven't got got stats in front of me, but anecdotally, it seems he's been, uh, you know, pretty pro-development in, in a lot of the times he's been asked to rule on stuff. Um, and we were very much hoping he would intervene in the case of Derby Assembly Rooms, which is due to be demolished and is a very, very controversial case because of the heritage of that building, that 1970s building and the embodied energy in it. And indeed, Derby City Council asked him to provide a view but he passed on that um yeah we're just going to have to wait and see really to see you know is this a, a sign of um a sort of hardening against tall buildings or a hardening against big large-scale schemes from major property developers um i mean you and i have a much better track record i would say far better track record than a lot of big developers in terms of design quality they tend to employ very good architects they do do public consultation on a much bigger scale than some of the volume house builders and stuff. And obviously they're working in a in a part of central London um, which demands that um, and has very switched on um, and, and uh, um, active residents who are going to make their views known. Um, so I think it, it's really too early to tell. But obviously the planning reforms are not just controversial to our audience and... Um, to architects and designers, they're hugely controversial in the Conservative Party. I mean, this is seen as a threat to Tory MPs in the shires who uh, whose constituents are, you know, really cross about this and are, are kind of starting to really mobilise and oppose it. So I think it's going to be tough for the government to try and stick with all elements of these planning reforms as they stand. Writing recently in The Critic magazine, the founder of lobbying group Create Streets, Nicholas Boy-Smith, commented on the British planning system, saying it was, quote, fundamentally different to most other countries where the right to develop is not nationalised but regulated. In countries as diverse as America, France and Germany, as long as landowners follow the local regulations, the difficulty, complexity and cost of achieving development is very modest compared to the UK. Does this fire station debacle show Boy Smith has a point? Is getting planning permission too complicated in the UK? I think he does have a point, yeah. I think it's it's not predictable enough. I think you should be able to pursue planning applications with a greater degree of certainty that if you do the right things, and I'm talking about public consultation, your reaction to, to the uh, huge challenge of the climate emergency using good design that's going to be interesting and beautiful, dare I say it. That's a controversial term, but that's one that the government's keen on. I, I, I'm pretty supportive of that idea. I just think that you've got, to, you've got to work out a few important things that the government hasn't worked out, like how do you resource that? You know, you've got to put enough 
planning resource so that you have design expertise and public consultation expertise in local authorities. The planning system does have to be tackled, and I think Boyd Smith has got a point there. Um, I just think you've got to resource it properly, and you don't want to be uh, distracted by style wars. I worry about that. I mean, Create Streets are very keen to say they don't have a style agenda, but you look at their Twitter feed and you think, really? You know, it does seem that you're banging the drum for classicism or neoclassicism, and you're you're pretty anti-post-war. Um, post-war buildings, you know, and brutalism in particular. Um, and I think, actually, there's a, there's a much more important challenge here we've all got to tackle, um, which, you know, style shouldn't get in the way of. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as $9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story this week appeared in the Architects Journal and is all to do with a major Moscow housing renewal contest, which was won by leading UK practices. Zaha Hadid Architects, Tony Fretton Architects, LDA Design and Architects of Invention have been named overall winners of a contest held by Moscow government as part of its ongoing housing stock renovation programme. The Face of Renovation competition, open to experienced international teams, sought, quote, architectural space and stylistic concept of house fronts for new homes to replace the city's Khrushchevera housing blocks in the city, which are known locally as Khrushchevkas. Backed by Moscow Mayor Sergei Serbyanin and launched in 2019, the ongoing 25 square kilometre initiative will see around 10% of the Russian capital's outdated existing housing stock redeveloped and more than a million residents rehoused. This isn't the first time many of the winners have been involved in Russian development projects. Four years ago, ZHA was one of the teams competing for one of five pilot sites within the city's ambitious £4 billion housing renewal programme. And only last year, they won a contest to design a new station on the Moscow Metro. So, Will, the scale of this redevelopment is quite staggering. A vast amount of 1950s and 60s housing blocks are set to be redeveloped. One might draw a comparison to the highly contentious Haygate redevelopment here in London. Southwark Council was slated for clearing more than 3,000 residents out of the estate, selling the land to to Lendlease in what appeared to be, if nothing else, a financially questionable deal, leaving what was a well-established community, both on the estate and beyond, fractured and dispersed. This estate regeneration project in Moscow is enormous and could involve around 10% of the city's historic housing stock being demolished. Why are leading London architects getting involved in a project involving so much demolition abroad just at a time when retrofit is rocketing up the agenda at home? I think we need to put that question to these architects and um, I don't think it's, it's acceptable to behave differently in terms of... Um, sustainable architecture in Moscow or anywhere else in the world than it is here on home turf. All these kind of projects need to be justified in whole life carbon terms. That's really the point of our Wretch First campaign is it's not acceptable to 
do demolition and particularly this kind of wide scale demolition uh, you know 10% of a city that's huge or 10% of the existing housing stock so you really have to provide the calculations to show you've looked at the carbon cost of demolition and rebuild versus the carbon cost of refurbishment I understand a lot of these 50s blocks are in a pretty poor state of repair so there may be you know manifold challenges in, in bringing them up to standard but you know you have to do your sums and, and that's what I think these architects need to explain how is this going to make sense in whole life carbon terms because obviously this is a, a global issue the damage that you do in carbon terms in Moscow is just as bad as the damage you'd be doing in carbon terms over here. Our next story was covered again by the AJ and is all to do with the RIBA's defence of revising its 2030 climate targets downwards. The RIBA 2030 Climate Challenge is an optional pledge launched in 2019 with signed up practices vowing to hit targets to reduce operational energy requirements, embodied carbon emissions and potable water use in buildings they design. Divided between domestic and non-domestic buildings, the targets are split into three tiers between progressively more ambitious goals outlined in 2020, 2025 and 2030. Responding to a low uptake of the pledge, the RIBA amended the goals and as a result, the targets for embodied carbon emission have changed the most. Under the RIBA's original climate challenge targets, a residential building with 624 kilograms of embodied CO2 emissions per square metre would have failed to reach the easiest 2020 target. However, that same scheme would now succeed in meeting the most difficult 2030 targets in the new rules. The business-as-usual levels of embodied carbon emissions assumed by the scheme have also risen by 20 to 27%. Some targets have been made tougher to achieve, operational energy emission levels in the business-as-usual brackets are now lower, and the 2025 targets for operational energy output are reduced, making them both more challenging. Joe Giddings, a coordinator at the Architects Climate Action Network, ACAN, said many members of the Climate Campaign Group were not supportive of the revised targets, adding, our members want to see more ambitious reductions in carbon emissions rather than what is deemed achievable by today's standards. Alan Jones, president of the RIBA, said the changes were about making sure embodied carbon targets are aligned and consistent and said the 2030 climate challenge was still ambitious. So, Will, you've been an influential voice within the industry advocating architects' responsibility in building and designing with climate crisis in mind, and you've championed the Retro First uh, campaign at the AJ. What do you think about the RIBA revising down their climate challenge goals? Are they still bold enough, as Joan suggests, or are they taking a weak stance in the face of mounting climate concerns? I think this move is quite predictable. I think you know, there is a huge gap between what needs to happen in terms of ongoing architecture and what current practice is currently supporting. And here you have a membership organisation which is kind of stepping into a policy vacuum, I think. You know, I mentioned earlier the incredibly ambitious targets that Boris Johnson has set on net zero. It's now... Uh, we need to achieve a 78% reduction in carbon by 2035. And yet you don't have the policy to achieve that, particularly in construction, where we don't have any regulations really in embodied carbon. You can understand why 
these arguments are going on. You know, the, the, the RIBA is trying to push its members in the right direction, but they find that a lot of them are way off the, the original targets that were uh, announced for architecture 2030. And the government um, carrot and sticks are not there. So I kind of could see this one coming, I suppose. Um, and I, I think it's just very regrettable that um, we're having this conversation. We should just have legislation that makes it quite clear what everybody needs to do, including architects. Will, you recently published a column in The Times about the UK's unhealthy obsession with demolition and wastage, both physical and in terms of CO2. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about the scale of the issue and why the RIBA should really be pulling out all the stops to ensure retrofit is always encouraged and considered first? Well, in The Times article, which I wrote for their Thunderer column, I pointed out that the government is starting to make some quite welcome and interesting moves on circular economy, particularly with things like e-waste, that's electronic waste or electrical waste, whereby they're uh, introducing a right to repair law. And this summer, consumers will have the right to um, take electrical goods for repair, which obviously creates an incentive for manufacturers to produce goods that are going to stand the test of time and will keep going and going. That is the kind of approach that we need to see in other industries like construction, because actually e-waste is tiny compared to construction waste. Construction waste is actually two-thirds of all UK waste, believe it or not, and that's uh, two-thirds of 200 million tonnes. So it's a staggering amount. And obviously, we all know that it is not put in landfill, it is reused, but you know, it's ground up, a lot of this um, mortar and cement and uh, aggregates are ground up and used for road building. So it's downcycling. It's not at all ideal and it's costly because you are then replacing all these buildings that you're demolishing. And we're talking about, as you mentioned earlier, 50,000 buildings a year being lost to demolition. Um, we're replacing all of those with new structures which cost typically a huge amount of carbon to produce because they're built of steel, concrete, um, plastic, aluminium. Cement, you know, the key ingredient of concrete, is 8% of global CO2 emissions, according to Chatham House. So that gives you an idea why UK construction is responsible for about 10% of UK emissions, and altogether, in terms of operational carbon, ongoing emissions from buildings, the built environment sector is responsible for about 45% of UK emissions. So, you know, it's a huge opportunity area, I think, for the UK government ahead of COP26. You know, they've set these targets, they need to set out some sensible ways of actually meeting them to have credibility, I think, at that summit in Glasgow in November. So, Will, finally... Please, can you tell our listeners, where can they go to find out more about what you're up to at the moment? You can Google Retro First, which is the name of our campaign, and we've got a landing page on our website which talks about where the campaign came from and links to a new film that we've made. Amazing. Thank you so much. And anything more particularly about you? Are you on Twitter? Where can people find out more what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on, um, uh, you know, it's probably not very good for my mental health, but I'm on all the main uh, social media platforms, including Twitter, Whurst one um, 
so yeah, I'm always always banging on about it. I'm sure people are getting very sick because I'm a bit like a broken record, but <laughs> that's my main topic really is retro first. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.